0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: COVID has just radically shifted the way that the world thinks about contact with money and things that put potential nodes for transferring diseases. And money is one of the filthiest things on planet Earth.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Eric Solis. He's from an organization called Cash. And we're going to be talking about the increase of fraud attacks on consumers and businesses and some of the things that are going on in the digital payment world. All right, Joe, let's dig into our stories this week. I'm going to okay. kick things off by sharing with you and our listeners that I recently bought a new pillow. A new pillow? I bought a what, new pillow. What kind of pillow is it? Well, it uh, it's it's a memory foam pillow. Okay. Let me just say that I I had had an old pillow, of course, uh, as mm-hmm. we all do, and yep. uh, and you know I think it's a good idea to replace your pillow every now and then because pillows get old and you know dirty Gross. and all that kind yeah. of stuff yeah yeah i mean it's a natural long and they're, they're... I, I, yes i do certainly gonna... yes, absolutely right. more and more it seems as i right. age uh <laughs> got to keep flipping it over to you know not yep. uh, not have my not face to, get in to the, the cool side to get to the dry side <laughs> <laughs> exactly so uh and i was also i will admit uh, not to get too political but i was slightly motivated by the fact that my old pillow uh, came from a company who i no longer wish to support Uh, because their CEO is a bit of a wacko. So (laughs) I decided it was time to get a new pillow. So I did what many people do, and I go on Amazon, and I shopped around for pillows. And as I do when I shop around for anything on Amazon, I looked at the reviews to see what people had to say about this product. And I found a pillow that I uh, thought suited my needs, uh, and so I ordered that pillow, and the next day the pillow... Showed up. Amazon did a great job. I'm starting to think, Joe, that there might be an Amazon distribution center in the shrubs out front of my house because <laughs> right. how, how quickly it is they're how able quickly to get, things, they get to me. things to you. Right. I mean, I press the button, and it seems just seems like there's a knock on my door. Moments later, that the thing is there. So, hey, what took you so long? <laughs> right. I got caught behind a school bus. <laughs> so I get this pillow, and I unpack the pillow and take it out of the box, and uh, it's a memory foam pillow. So it takes about a day to kind of reinflate itself, you know, because it's all squished up to fit inside a box. But of interest to us is that along with the pillow, in the box were two little postcards. Hmm. One of the postcards I will read to you, it says, Congratulations, you are the luckiest one to get the bonus. Review us on Amazon. You will get extra $25. How to get the bonus? Send review link and Amazon order ID to, and then there's an email address, the bonus will be sent to your order address, Please do not share this card in your review. (laughs) Hmm. And then there's another one, another card. It says, try your luck, redeem online. And it goes to uh, a website that's vipclub.app. Let me tell you, if you go online and you try searching for information about a company that's called VIP Club. Uh Uh-huh. It strip clubs all the way down, Joe. Right. <laughs> I strip would imagine. clubs all the way down, which is a really good thing to be searching for on your work computer, let me yes, just tell awesome. you. Uh, that's, that's great. So Thank you
2: for the warning. But, uh, I, was at, I was about to hit club <laughs> and uh, return and see what happened, and I will not do that now. Let me hit the backspace key and take VIP right out of my Google right. search bar. So
0: I went to this website, this vipclub.app, and it seems like this is some sort of a clearinghouse for gathering up Amazon reviews. So this got me curious because... Because I suspected that this is against Amazon's terms of service, that you're really not supposed to be out there trying to solicit reviews, offering people money <laughs> for reviews, right? I think you, right? Can, you can ask for a review, but you can't incentivize it, right? I think that's right. So I, I did some digging around and I found an article here from The Verge. They published this back in October of last year. So it's still, you know, a pretty, pretty current. Uh, And the title of the article is, uh, Amazon is trying to crack down on fraudulent reviews. They're thriving in Facebook groups. Uh, It's written by Joe Schiffer over at uh, The Verge. And it turns out there's a, not surprisingly, there's a whole ecosystem based around getting fake five-star reviews on Amazon, and the reason for that is, of course, the algorithm. If your if your product gets a lot of reviews and it gets a lot of positive reviews, that bumps you up on the list of things that are going to be shown to people on Amazon, and that's how you get your product sold. That's right. That uh, can be worth tens of thousands of dollars, so sure. millions even. Yeah, it turns out that enough. there are groups on Facebook whose focus is bringing people together who like to do these fake reviews. <laughs> <laughs> in exchange for doing the fake reviews, they get the products for free. So the way it works is you will agree with uh, the seller of some product. Let's say it's a, it's a pillow. This pillow manufacturer will reach out to you and say, hey, please buy this pillow. If you re- review the pillow, send us a link to the review, and we will refund your purchase price. Plus, you get to keep the pillow. Right. So you get a free pillow in exchange mm-hmm. for posting your review that comes from a verified Amazon purchaser because you're buying it with your own money, using your own credit card. And they get the five-star review. You get a free pillow. Everybody wins except for the people who are counting on your review to actually establish whether this pillow was any good or not. So Amazon is trying to crack down on this. And it seems like they're working with Facebook to try to tamp down these Facebook groups that are the connection between the online Amazon sellers and the people who want to do these reviews. But these things are, it's a game of whack-a-mole. Right. These groups pop up as fast as they uh, go away. And Facebook is
2: cooperating with this. Maybe Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos get together at the billionaires meeting and uh, have a a sidebar discussion (laughs) on the new spaceship. The orbital clubhouse, right, (laughs) Right. where they all get together
0: uh, (laughs) on a monthly basis to uh, lay out their plans for the upcoming quarter. I don't know, because Facebook's all about engagement. so absolutely.
2: (laughs) And that's my point, is that why would Facebook want to shut these groups down? They're showing ads to everybody in those groups, and there might be hundreds of people. I mean, that's a hit to their revenue.
0: Right. right. The Amazon sellers are buying ads on Facebook to connect with these people to write the reviews for them. So there's an ecosystem there. There's money being exchanged hands. And yes, Facebook profits from it. I don't know to what degree Facebook is helping to take these things down or cooperating with Amazon or who knows, but it's a thing. So here's my question. As someone who is buying things on Amazon, how do you know? How do you detect whether a review is legit or not? Because the folks who are posting these, they post pictures. I don't know,
2: Dave, because one of the biggest things I used to use is this verified purchase, right? And that's right. that's a flag that Amazon sets. When you buy something and you review it, you get the verified purchase stamp on your review. Mm -hmm. They're just getting a refund from the seller, probably outside of the channel, right? right? They might get some kind of gift card sent to them, although Amazon can probably check that, right? I don't know how they do the payment to the original purchaser, but these people are getting around that. People are creative and they're going to find a way around your system. (laughs) And, (laughs) And this is just a case in point
0: of that. Yeah, I wonder, too, if, you you know, you do it kind of like um, some of those, uh, I don't know, diving competitions or something, you know, things you see in the Olympics where they throw out the lowest and the highest score and they right. use the, all the ones in the middle. Right. right so yeah. maybe maybe the way to go is to automatically just ignore all the five star reviews. Start at the four star reviews because those are people who are largely pleased with the product. And they may have some constructive criticism about it, and they're much more likely to be legit reviewers. Maybe that's a way to go
2: at it. Two things I would say. Number one is exactly what you're saying. Look at the four-star reviews, because I I generally don't look at the five-star reviews now because of exactly this problem. You're looking at people who have been paid to write the review, even if they bought the product. They've right. just been paid in the product. The four-star review is exactly as you said, someone who liked it and had some legitimate criticism, and, and you look at the four-star reviews and make a determination based on it. The other thing I say is look at the one-star reviews and see how many of them there are. And then also, one of the things that Amazon does is they have a little distribution graph for the reviews. And if you see what they call a C-shaped distribution, meaning that there's a lot of five-star reviews and then a lot of one-star reviews and then not a lot of four, three, and two-star reviews that kind of looks like the letter C, that indicates fraudulent product that has purchased a lot of five-star reviews.
0: So that is my story this week. Uh, we'll have a link to uh, that story from The Verge all about how these things work and how they're using the Facebook groups. By the way, the pillow is quite comfy. It's nice. Is it's it? a nice pillow. So so, yeah, so far so good, you know. Pillows are I'm kind of like the princess and the pea with pillows. It's hard, you know, when I find a good pillow, boy, I love it, but uh, kind of particular about my pillows, Joe. That's my story this week. What do you have for us, Joe? CyberArk, Dave
2: has some commentary on a new report that Verizon issued last year. And we'll put a link to this in the show notes. I want to talk about this report. Verizon has been publishing for 13 years a report they call the DBIR. This is the Data Breach Investigation Report. And it comes out in, I think, May and everybody looks at it because it's got a lot of statistics and cool charts that show you trends and you can see how things are changing year over year it's one of the flagship reports in in all of yeah, cybersecurity. it's
0: a biggie it's a biggie. It's a, biggie. Yeah. Right. So it's it's, a big it's, big important report everybody everybody looks forward to it because it is it is very
2: well done right this year verizon has issued a new report and it's called the cyber espionage report and it mm. is focusing on these data breaches that verizon believes are actually cyber espionage not just criminal activity and there are a couple of interesting points in this report that might be relevant to our audience the first point is that in these espionage attacks 93 percent of the time the attacker is either state affiliated or an actual state actor that's in comparison to all the other data breaches where organized crime is responsible for about 58 percent of the breaches they have charts in this report Organized crime is really looking into making money off these breaches, but the state actors are the ones conducting the espionage report or the espionage attacks in this report.
0: Espionage is defined as? Uh, they are either stealing
2: intellectual property or they're stealing intelligence from government organizations.
0: Right. And extra so information data. rather than cash.
2: Right. Exactly. They're going for it can yeah. be corporate espionage or it can be governmental espionage. The, you know, the mm-hmm. typical thing you think of when you think of espionage. One of the interesting things is that social engineering is very heavily relied upon in these espionage attacks. These attackers directly communicate with their targets in these social engineering attacks, much more so than the criminal enterprises do because they have this this kind of tradecraft. They also spent some time talking about something called a GIF attack. They made mention about the fact that everybody is working remotely right now. This GIF attack is an attack that, that occurred on Microsoft Teams. And yeah, don't send your letters telling me how to pronounce GIF. I'm going to pronounce it GIF with a hard G until the day I die. Um, Because
0: you're not a monster. Because I'm not a monster. Right, exactly.
2: (laughs) It's not really a social engineering attack. It's actually a vulnerability in software that in Microsoft Teams, if you send somebody an animated GIF, then you can actually collect their authentication token through a very complex vulnerability that somebody found in this team system. But once you collect that, you can start collecting more of them from everybody's contacts. But the interesting thing was this was really only made possible by the fact that we're all working remotely now, Hmm. right? So it's interesting that there's this social aspect to this attack that isn't really a social engineering attack, but is made possible by our behavior.
0: Hmm. Why is it only enabled by remote work? Is it just being outside of the protection of a corporate environment? Because we're all working remotely, we're all using remote communication tools more. Mm. So that increases
2: the prevalence of these these tools, which makes the attack surface a lot broader. I see. So now when somebody wants to go and, and start attacking Microsoft Teams users, it's easier to find the targets. And once you can find one target, you can spread throughout that organization very quickly. The cyber espionage report is available online. It's A good report. Take a look at it, and uh, also you can take a look at this article from CyberArk. It's an interesting article with uh, with a good amount of commentary in it. I liked it.
0: You know, it's interesting to me because I think a a lot of folks, when they hear the word espionage, they think, uh, "Well, I'm not a spy. Why would they be interested in me?" Oh, well, no, there's something to that. You work for a company that has trade secrets, or you know, there's all kinds of information probably in your workplace that. Somebody is interested in, could could be a competitor, could be a a nation state. And even if you're not directly involved with that information, you could be the way they get into the company to get to that information.
2: That is absolutely correct. This is one of my biggest talking points when I'm delivering talks is that, yes, you are a target and you do have something of value. Don't think that you're not of value or that you're insignificant. You are not. You are a meaningful way to access
0: data, if nothing else, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which Mm -hmm. I don't mean you're good enough. You're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people want to hack you. (laughs) Thank you, Stuart. (laughs) All right. It's a good story. As always, we'll have uh, links to it in the show notes there. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day.
2: Dave, our catch of the day comes in the form of a letter from a listener named Jim, and he had a recent eBay transaction that didn't go
0: well for him.
2: So he wrote this letter. Hmm. You want to read it?
0: Sure. It says, long-time listener here, but I haven't heard you guys discuss this particular scam I was a victim to recently. I ordered a portable SSD from eBay a couple of weeks back and received a tracking number from the seller via eBay. The tracking number appears legit in the UPS tracking system, albeit way too heavy at 8.3 pounds. That's a heck of an SSD. Right. (laughs) But the delivery day, nothing shows up. I receive many packages on a weekly basis, so it would register on my surveillance camera. Of course, UPS only lets the sender file an issue, not me, and the eBay seller does not return emails. So I requested a refund through eBay, and they are indicating the package was delivered. I have appealed this case, but they're saying it's closed. I believe it to be a seller scam because the seller doesn't respond to any email. Initially, the seller had good feedback. Then suddenly, the frauds came in. The seller feedback indicates this has happened to at least 10 others. See the attached snippets for some of the feedback. And uh, Jim was uh, courteous enough to send us a screen capture of that. And he says, please let others know, as eBay has been no help in this matter. Thanks for all your service to the internet community. Yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, Yeah, it is. What do you think about this, Joe?
2: Like you said, Jim sent along some screenshots, and he's got these other complaints in there. So there's a, a bunch of people out there that have fallen victim to this, at least more than 10, he says. And the screenshots he showed us were pretty clear that what's going on here. I don't know, Jim, maybe if you have the time, you send a letter to their legal department and say, you know, we have a number of people here who have had fraudulent sales on eBay and you're not helping me and I'll bet you're not helping more people. So maybe I just round up a couple of these people and we start a class action suit. Or maybe you help me. Companies hate well, yeah. class action suits. They really do.
0: <laughs> the thing that puzzles me is is the UPS aspect of this. I mean, we've we've had stories here before where the scammers have sent out something other than what you were buying. You know, right. so you would, you know, you'd buy a, a, a an SSD like Jim here did, and a package would show up, and you know, inside would be a I don't know, a pack, you know, a candy bar or something, something of no value. But what it does is it allows that sender to say, no, I sent it. Look, here's the receipt. They, the person signed for it. Here's the, yeah. It was delivered. I don't know what they're talking about. And there's a component of that here. But what I'm wondering is in the UPS tracking information, does it say that it was delivered to his house or to his address? Uh, that, right. that part puzzles me that there was no package. The UPS tracking information does have the delivery address on it. So I would imagine
2: it would be there. But you're right. This is puzzling. There is no package. And mm-hmm. he has a camera on it, so it's not like the package was delivered and then picked up by some porch pirate. It's a mystery, Dave.
0: Yeah, it is. Maybe, maybe that's a way to go at it: is say, "Hey UPS, I need uh, proof that this was delivered." Because a lot of times UPS will take a picture when they deliver something and they'll send it to you, or right, you know, they're 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 documenting stuff like that too. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of the other way, maybe to help prevent something like this is, you know, as Jim says, the seller had good feedback initially but then seemed to have you know fraud after that. And I could see someone who was looking to do these sorts of frauds would figure out a way to get a bunch of good feedback to put people at ease. Maybe when you look for the feedback, make sure that the feedback is for the thing that you're buying from them or a similar thing to what you're buying for them. In other words, if, if you're buying something of high value, don't look for the feedback of something of low value. Right. right? They, right. You know, they sent out, a, again, you know, they sent they sent me a, a stuffed animal and it was great and I loved it. You know, a $5 thing is different from a $500 thing. But right. even then, I mean, as, you know, as we've said, people have figured out how to game these systems. So yeah. that's and, a tough one. I wish we had better answers for it, but at least we can help all, spread Jim the word is, about it. Jim is probably not out
2: a lot of money. A, an external SSD is not, you know, maybe a may hundred bucks. So maybe it's not worth your time to write the letter and maybe you let it go and maybe that's what the scammers are counting on, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that as Americans with a relatively high per capita disposable income that we
0: won't chase these things down. Right, hundred bucks at a time adds up. Yeah, yep. right. But it might not be worth Jim's time to chase it down. Just write it off and, and go yep. somewhere else. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Joe, will you send me a hundred bucks? I mean, it's sure. not that it, much. It's in the mail. Great, <laughs> okay, great. Thanks. I'll look forward to that. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Thanks to our listener, Jim, for sending that in. We would love to hear from you. If you have a catch of the day, you can send it to us to hackinghumans at com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Eric Solis. He's from a company called Movo Cash. They are one of many online cash payment systems that are online that are taking advantage of some of the technologies that are available to securely transfer funds from person to person. And uh, so we had an interesting conversation about the types of fraud that are going on in this ecosystem and how people like him and his company and, and others are trying to help protect people. Here's my conversation with Eric Solis.
1: There's been a seismic shift in the way that people uh, behave with regard to banking. And so where before digital banking was sort of like a, an interesting evolution of banking, now it's sort of like, you know, you hear about the Kraken, right? The, sort of like the Kraken for banking is, has, has been unleashed. In part because COVID has just radically shifted the way that the world thinks about contact with money and things that put potential nodes for transferring diseases. And money is one of the filthiest things on planet Earth. Well, let's
0: explore this notion of of people's relationships with their banks. I mean, I'm imagining uh, if I'm someone, you know, a teenager coming up and I'm just starting my relationship with the banking system, it's probably going to be different than, you know, someone older like me who grew up, you know, going to my, my local neighborhood branch and keeping track of how much I had in my savings account.
1: You know, you'd think that would be true, but the statistics don't necessarily support that. I mean, yes, there's digitally minded people that are, you know, the millennials and the in the younger generation. But the fastest, probably on a percentage basis of adoption of digital financial services, let's call it digital banking, is uh, Gen Xers and uh, baby boomers, because they've been slow to ad- to adapt. And so Consequently, they're playing a little bit of catch up. But the interesting thing about that demographic is that, you know, it's harder and harder for them to get out of the house. So once they get dialed in to digital means, they consume it and they consume it in large quantities. Um, That's why Facebook, you know, the age, average age has gone up dramatically at Facebook. And it's in part because older people, especially senior citizens, they're lonely. Their knees hurt. Their back hurts. You know, there's lots of reasons why for them to be able to do things that they need to do right from their home and sitting on their in their lazy boy, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Well, I mean, there's certainly a proliferation of cash apps out there. Um, you know, yours among them. How do you go about establishing trust with folks that when they're using a service like yours or any any of the other ones out there, that it's something that's going to be reliable that they can count on?
1: in today's world now i'll flip back and talk a little bit more about the younger generation they trust technology as much and perhaps more than they trust organization in other words you know to trust a, a group of people at you know a particular physical location to walk in and hand them money and for it to be properly accounted for requires a lot of trust if you stop and think about it. Money that's going direct deposit digitally, directly from your payroll provider to, you know, your digital bank with with tracking functions. You know, people surprisingly trust that sort of mode of operation as much or more than they trust the old mode and operation. So things like FDIC insurance and making sure that if in fact you're offering FDIC insurance, that that you communicate that properly, that the app itself is structured in accordance with PCI and DSS and, and making that known and clear. But, you know, I think that your point is one that is well taken. And, you know, I sort of liken it to there was a time when people didn't trust ATM machines. They're like, I'm not using an ATM machine. I mean, they were considered to be these highly unsecure, bizarre machines that were performing work of a teller. But now people think of an ATM as just a normal part of their everyday banking life. And I think we're seeing that same sort of adaption and adoption of digital banking. What about
0: protecting people from online fraud? You know, the the ability, if someone falls victim to something and the ability to kind of, you know, claw back a payment, if you will. You know, we've heard uh, on this show, we've talked about uh, certainly many people who find themselves just out of luck when something like that happens, that, you know, many of these services, when you're transferring money, when it's gone, it's gone.
1: I think that that's a really great point, that there's a difference between a ledger transaction and a bank transaction. And You know, whether we're talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum or some other cryptocurrency or Venmo or PayPal um, or Zelle, there are unique differences and they all rely on underpinnings for their offering. So, for example, if you're going to go into the crypto space, they're relying on the distributed ledger to make sure That what belongs to you remains your asset and is immutable given the blockchain technology and the distributed ledger aspect of of how that works. If you're dealing in Venmo or those types of ledger technologies, you know, they flat out tell you you only deal with people, you know, family and friends. You know, this is not designed for commercial use. And then there are ledgers that are actually inside of a bank and operating like a bank product. That's what Movo does. Movo has instantaneous settlement in a bank environment, much more like a Zelle transaction. And and in that case, then you, again, are relying upon that bank and that Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to protect the soundness of your money and if it goes missing you have recourse back with your bank and if it's covered under a visa guarantee or something of that nature. So so it's important to understand what, you know, guarantee are you relying on? And some people trust cryptographic uh, money more than they trust fiat currency and that's their tilt and, and view of the world and so you just have to decide what do you believe and how do you want to protect yourself?
0: I suppose too. I mean, it's probably a, a red flag if, if someone that you're dealing with is really trying to push you toward one payment mode or another. You know, if I'm comfortable using a, a service like yours or, or one of the others and someone is insisting, no, no, we must use this one, maybe that's a a reason to, uh, to put the brakes on a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a good call out. I would encourage your listeners to pay attention to and at least explore and understand what, what we in the industry call interoperability. And it's not a very consumer-friendly sounding word. Nonetheless, is important to understand because, you know, the financial system's much like an interstate highway system. And if you're going to travel from point A to point B, understanding the connectivity of the systems that you need to use to get there 405 to 5 to 90 91 east west whatever you know understanding how you're going to get there makes really good sense in today's world there's a lot of that you know and 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 the more that you understand the underground infrastructure that you're using to move your money from one place to another the better protection you'll have because that interoperability is becoming a bigger and bigger force that all of us are contending with to make sure that money's secure, safe, and that it gets to its its intended destination and without a lot of friction and silos for the consumer.
0: What are your recommendations for those of us who who kind of had that role in the family of of looking out for our family, our loved ones, you know, our our parents perhaps. What sort of things should should be on our radar in terms of uh, helping them make these sort of transactions safe and secure?
1: I think, and, and in some ways tried and true, right, relationships. It's interesting. It connects perfectly to the question that you just asked in terms of if somebody's forcing you to go, you know one direction or another if you have a comfort and you've you've got a relationship with a financial institution whether it be a brick-and-mortar sort of legacy system or whether you're really comfortable with digital systems and you have a relationship then rely on that relationship to help you understand the lay of the land right like pick up the phone you know we have what we call mo pros and our mo pros are Really gifted professionals to understanding digital payments, so they can help you unravel or understand what you know risks that you might have in a particular transaction and how best to make that transaction um, end up the way you want it to end up. And they can help you sniff out at times some of the areas of potential fraud that you may want to watch for. So rely on relationships, seek advice from trusted sources and document. I mean documentation is a is a really important part of today's world because a lot of what we're doing happens digitally, it happens behind the scenes once you sort of hit the button all the information is lost into the ether of the internet. So keep good notes, paper and pencil you know still have their place in in the world and mm-hmm. document 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 and that way, you know, if something does I'll tell you, when we get called by people that have been defrauded or, uh, um, I mean, I, I can think of one guy in particular, I won't go through the whole story, but this guy had the best documentation. He was able to send me documentation and that guy was protected, bam, and quickly. In other words, he took what could have otherwise taken you know, as two weeks to unravel and we did it in 15 minutes because he just documented everything. So that's mm. what I would strongly encourage. And, you know, if you think about it at the corporate level, we tell our people the same thing, document, 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 you know, make sure that you're, you were tracking everything, you know? And so at the individual level, people need to apply a develop, almost a development type process to their day-to-day lives. And, and really at the end of the day, developers like to document. Keep good notes so you know what what in the world, why you coded it up the way you coded it up. (laughs) All right, Joe, what do you think? That was a good interview, Dave. I enjoyed it a lot. Eric made a couple of good
2: points here. One is that we're not going to our branches anymore. Yeah, I'm not going to my bank right now, Dave. I'm using a lot more of the online features, and and people like us are moving more towards the online adoption of these services. And Eric makes a great point is that the younger generation really doesn't have that much more market growth to do. But our generation, we have a lot of it to do Mm -hmm. because I've generally been resistant to the idea of online banking for a very long time. But over time, I've kind of moved on and now I do
0: it. Right. But for our kids, it's reflexive.
2: Right. Exactly. I don't know about you, but I was taught at a very young age that physical money is filthy. (laughs)
0: to wash your hands after all that stuff. Yeah, I think my I don't know, I probably had a mouthful of quarters or something. And (laughs) And everybody in your house goes, "Ah, spit that uh, out, spit that out. You don't know know where those coins have been.
2: Uh, Younger people trust technology more than they trust institutions or organizations. And I think that's interesting. I don't really trust either any more than the other, one more than the other. I, I check hmm. everything when I do this. I have little faith in technology that people develop, and I have little faith in people's actions. So, so <laughs> maybe I'm just a, a you know an, a grumpy old man, but I'm always surprised when when one of these mobile payment systems actually works. Right, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like I right. have a I have somebody I send money to via PayPal from time to time, and uh, when I send the money to them, I always say, "Let me know when you got that money." Mm hmm. <laughs> yeah, they send me back. Hey, thanks. I got it. Eric was talking about faith in cryptocurrencies versus fiat currencies. I don't know which one I have more faith in. I think both of them have value. The IRS's stand on this in cryptocurrency is that cryptocurrency is not currency. It's just an asset. That's how the federal government's looking at it. They're not really looking at it as money. They're looking at it as a digital asset that you that you either receive or give. There is a distinction here. Like you like to say from time to time, this is almost a distinction without a difference, right? If, if we were paying each other in gold or silver, would that be different? I don't know.
0: Fiat money and all the, the cryptocurrencies, it's a shared illusion. It's something we all agree on that have, right. well, you and I are going to agree that this piece of paper that has Twenty on it is worth right. twenty dollars and right. and the the reason it works is we all agree on it, and there are ways to enforce it to you know, keep you and me from printing new ones on our, <laughs> our home inkjet printer right. but ultimately, we all just agree to it because it 's convenient and it, it helps make the world move a little easier
2: by the way i you, you mentioned this, and i, I don 't know that we 've ever mentioned this before on this show or or even on the cyberwire, but do you know every single inkjet any every single color printer that is available now and has been for a while? prints an almost invisible set of dots on every document that it prints that identifies the make, model, and serial number of the printer. And it also puts a timestamp in there. They're done with yellow ink, and that's how they can tie somebody printing counterfeit $20 bills, like you were saying. They know exactly which printer printed these things. Yep. Yep. So don't print counterfeit money out of your color printer. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> for a number of reasons. One, it's wrong. It's, it's illegal. And number two, you're probably going to get caught. Eric makes a, an excellent point here about understanding the underlying system of the banking infrastructure that we have. Eric says that from a banking perspective, and that's where he comes from. But I think this has a much broader application in just about everything we do. And my hmm. favorite analogy is a car, right? They always say, you don't need to know how a car works to drive a car. But my comeback to that is if you understand the inner workings of a car, it makes you a much better driver. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for computer systems, for networks. And Eric makes an excellent point here for banking systems. If you understand how the banking system works, you're in a much better position to protect yourself. And I think Mm. that's incumbent upon all of us to learn how this works.
0: If it gives you that kind of spidey sense that something might not be right if someone is trying to take advantage of you.
2: One of the things that Eric also touches on in this interview is FDIC insurance. You know that PayPal is not FDIC insured? Hmm. They're not a bank. They're a payment system. So if you're holding a balance in PayPal, which right now i think i might have like three or four dollars up there but you Mm -hmm. can be holding a lot of money in paypal or venmo and i don't know if venmo is fdic insured or not i didn't look into that but if paypal tomorrow becomes insolvent there is no protection you have about getting your money back like you do with the bank and movo which is our guest company movo cash is fdic insured there are other money transfer apps like chime that are also fdi insured they're actually banks on the back end i think movo may also be a bank on the back end that offers you much more protection. Now, if this company becomes insolvent and you can't get access to your money, you can file a claim with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and say, that was my money, and they'll they'll pay you back.
0: One of those things that's worth checking just to, right. to have that extra bit of security.
2: Exactly. I mean, PayPal is really convenient,
0: but it is, it is not a bank.
2: It is not FDIC insured. Right. Interesting. Finally, the last thing that Eric says I really liked, was rely on relationships, seek advice from trusted resources, and document everything. Document, document, document. I would like to hear more about the story that he referenced in here with the the fraud on the guy who documented everything. I mean I'm sure he can't tell us because of the nature of the the fraud, but I would love to know that story. I'd love to be a fly on the yeah. wall in that in that room. Document everything is a great suggestion. If I ever go back into, into development, I want to work with the developers that Eric worked with who like documenting their code. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you just look at code and you're like, what does this do? And then you, there's absolutely no comments in the code. <laughs> just like, I just want to find who wrote this and strangle them.
0: <laughs> right. Well, our thanks to Eric Solis from uh, Movo Cash uh, for joining us. We appreciate him taking the time.